Hi, everyone. This is Adam White, co-director of the Gray Center. Welcome back to the Gray Matters podcast. Today's episode is a recording of a recent event that the Gray Center hosted. We called it a Supreme Court halftime show. Uh, in previous years, we used to do a preview of each year's upcoming administrative law cases in the Supreme Court. This year, we decided to wait a little while and do it about halfway through. A little did we know when we picked the date that it would come just days after uh, Justice Breyer would announce his retirement from the court. And so we touch on that uh, towards the end of the conversation. But by and large, this is a conversation of the administrative law issues that have already come before the court this term, including the OSHA vaccine mandate case and some other high-profile cases, but also uh, cases yet to be argued, including the dispute around the EPA's uh, claim of authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions in the clean power plant. So we had a great panel, uh, two leading Supreme Court advocates, uh, Deepak Gupta of the eponymous uh, Gupta Wessler Law Firm and Hash Mupan of Jones Day. Uh, I chimed in a few thoughts along the way, too. The conversation was led by our co-director, Jen Mascott. So I hope you like the discussion. We're very, very lucky to be joined by two of the most significant Supreme Court practitioners in Washington. First, we'll hear from Deepak Gupta. Uh, he founded the firm of Gupta Wessler, which is one of the most prominent uh, boutique Supreme Court and appellate litigation firms in Washington. He previously served at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, an agency you, you hear about from time to time here at the Gray Center. Uh, he was actually hired to be senior counsel for litigation and senior counsel for enforcement strategy. He was the CFPB's first appellate lawyer. He's also a member of the Administrative Conference of the United States and a lecturer at Harvard Law School. He's argued five cases before the Supreme Court. We'll also hear from Hash Mupan. He's a partner at Jones Day. He served in the Justice Department as counselor for the Solicitor General and Deputy Assistant Attorney General for the Civil Appellate Staff. He's argued four cases before the Supreme Court, and he clerked for the late Justice Scalia. And finally, today's moderator is also the Gray Center's co-executive director, Jen Mascott. Professor Mascott is an assistant professor of law here at the Scalia Law School, where she writes and teaches on administrative law and constitutional structure. She served in the Justice Department as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Counsel and as an Associate Deputy Attorney General. She clerked for both Justice Thomas on the Supreme Court and Justice Kavanaugh when he was on the D.C. Circuit. And now at Scalia Law, she teaches classes with both of them. So, Jen, the floor is yours. Well, thanks so much, Adam. Uh, we have the delight to also have as a panelist today our own Adam White, who's going to discuss the cases along with Deepak and Hosh. So I am really just here to assure that the conversation remains civil and moves forward and is as engaging as it possibly can be, which I believe will be a very um, easy task. And I think everybody will learn a lot. And I myself am looking forward to the discussion. So how, what we're going to do is we're going to start with... Um, each of the panelists will go from Deepak to Adam to Hosh, and each of them is going to highlight briefly two cases related to administrative law um, before the court this term. And then what we'll do is have a time period where um, they can respond to each other's or add to or embellish each other's description <clears throat> of the cases. And then we'll have moderator-led discussion where we'll talk about um, some of the um, tensions and um points of great concern or matters of concern or importance or whatever in each of the cases, and also potentially some broad themes about the court's focus on administrative law this term, whether we think there are particular doctrines that will come into play more or less than others, and also tie in these themes to, as Adam mentioned, the news uh, just last week, that Justice Breyer has indeed confirmed that he plans to retire from the Supreme Court at the end of this term. And what does that mean for administrative law? He's been such a prominent voice on administrative law issues over the years, um, do we have a sense about how that will impact the courts and its ruling in these matters of great concern? So with that, why don't we start with uh, Deepak and each uh, panelist is going to talk just for about three to five minutes so we can have as much uh, back and forth discussion among ourselves and then hopefully with the audience uh, at the end as possible. So Deepak, the floor is yours. Great. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Adam and Jen, for inviting me to, to participate in this discussion. Um, Adam and I go way back, I think, when, just when I was starting uh, the, the firm, actually, we worked together on some, some issues uh, involving um, the administrative state. Um, so it's a pleasure to, to see you again. 
Um, I'm going to highlight just really quickly two uh, cases on the Supreme Court's docket that both involve uh, environmental regulation and the EPA. Um, the first case I want to mention um, is Sackett versus EPA. It was just granted uh, last week. And uh, this is a case that that has been up and down in the court system for years. A couple from Idaho, uh, Chantel and Michael Sackett, have been trying to get the courts to uh, <laughs> to answer the question uh, whether or not they can use their property, um, which is near a lake in Iowa. Uh, and um, and is uh, wetland. And so um, the, the EPA, uh, an EPA order, um, this has been going on 13 years now, uh, prevented the couple from building a home on their land um, because uh, the, the um, land is deemed wetland and therefore, um, according to the Army Corps of Engineers and the EPA, is, um, falls within the Clean Water Act's um, um, jurisdiction, um, which extends to waters of the United States. So this is the question here is the question that the Supreme Court um, was unable to decide famously in its 2006 um, decision in Rapanos versus United States. The, in that case, the court split uh, four uh, to one to four over the definition of waters of the United States. And um, the court had two tests that emerged from that Rapanos decision. One proposed by Justice Kennedy was that a wetland has to have a significant nexus to regulated waters. Um, and lower courts have followed this interpretation, uh, concluding that it's the narrowest, it was the narrowest ground. Um, but um, there's a, another definition proposed by, um, that was proposed by Justice Scalia, and his, that opinion was joined by uh, the chief, Thomas and Alito, which uh, help, under which uh, a wetland has to have continuous surface connection to regulated waters. And um, in, in the Sackett's case, it's pretty clear that the, uh, the government's jurisdiction would not extend under that test because there's a road um, that separates their land um, from, uh, from uh, a group of houses and then a lake. And then there's another road on the other side that separates them from the wetlands. Um, there's also a, a question in this case about uh, mootness. Uh, in the lower court, the uh, government withdrew the order um, that the Sacketts are challenging. And so there was a, a debate in the Ninth Circuit about whether uh, that mooted the, the um, controversy. The Ninth Circuit held that it didn't because uh, it was just voluntary cessation on the government's part. The uh, agency isn't bound by that. They could assert this jurisdiction again, and the Sacketts um, uh, need uh, clarity. And so I think that the Supreme Court is likely um, to agree with the Ninth Circuit that this uh, dispute is live. They took this in order to finally settle the question of what waters of the United States means um, with respect to wetlands. And I think they're likely um, to agree with Justice Scalia's um, test um, and conclude that that jurisdiction is not proper here. Um, so I'm spending more time, too much time on that case. So I'm going to quickly pivot and talk about the next case, um, which I, I hope we get a chance to discuss um, more, uh, West Virginia versus EPA. And this is um, the, the case uh, concerning the EPA's authority under the Clean, Clean Air Act to regulate carbon dioxide from coal-fired uh, power plants. Um, to make a really long story very short, um, in 2015, uh, the Obama administration unveiled the Clean Power Plan. That power plan never uh, went into effect because it was stayed in 2016 by the Supreme Court. In uh, 2019, the Trump administration issued uh, what it called the Affordable Clean Energy Plan, which took a much narrower view of the Clean Air Act uh, authority, the EPA's authority. Um, and then just at the end, tail end of the Trump administration, the D.C. Circuit tossed out that rule and um, concluded that uh, the, the agency's jurisdiction was broader and it was in conformity with the, the Clean Power Act, uh, Clean Power Plan. Um, so um, just really, really quickly, I think, um, you know, the, the smart money here is that the uh, Supreme Court is, uh, is you know, likely – um, going to reach the merits and conclude um, that um, the Trump administration's uh, view of, of the EPA's jurisdiction is correct. 
Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Alito, and, and Justice Thomas were all on the court when the court took the step of uh, of staying the clean power plan. Justice Kavanaugh was also, I think, quite skeptical of the plan um, when he was on the D.C. Circuit. Um, and uh, we don't know um, what uh, Justice Barrett will do. Um, I'll, I'll stop there because I've gone over my allotted time and I, I hope we'll have ch- a chance to discuss the case in, in uh, the discussion. Great. Thank you so much, Deepak, for setting the stage on those cases. That was really great. Adam, your turn. Thanks, Jen. So I'll talk about one of the most famous cases of the term so far first, and then a slightly less famous case. The first case or pair of cases are the vaccine mandate cases, NFIB versus OSHA, which was the general workplace vaccine mandate, and um, Biden versus Missouri, which had to do with a vaccine mandate for basically for health facilities. Uh, as, As surely anybody watching this webinar knows, the court decided these cases about three weeks ago. In the OSHA mandate case, the Secretary of Labor had promulgated a requirement that all employers uh, for more than 100 employees, so amounting to 80-something million workers in America, must require those employees to either get the COVID-19 vaccine or obtain weekly uh, tests and mask themselves at the workplace. So it was more or less a vaccine mandate for most workplaces. To support that requirement, the Secretary of Labor invoked the OSHA Act, the Occupational Safety and Health Act, which empowers the Secretary of Labor to promulgate regulations that are reasonably necessary or appropriate to provide safe or healthful employment. Now, of course, that requirement, the OSHA Act in general, has long raised uh, non-delegation questions going all the way back to the benzene case of the early 1980s. Uh, And so here we were again in the Supreme Court asking what exactly is the breadth of the agency's authority under that statute? Could it support a vaccine mandate like this? I'll just pause there for a second and turn to the HHS mandate. A slightly different statute or a different statute and a different context. The statute here was the statutes governing Medicare and Medicaid uh, reimbursements or for Medicare and Medicaid funding for healthcare facilities. And the Secretary of Health and Human Services promulgated a mandate that all employees in those hospitals, hospitals require, uh, receiving federal funding, uh, would need to uh, have their employees vaccinated with an exception for, for religious exemptions and, and, and so on. So it was a more tar- targeted context and a more targeted requirement. And the Supreme Court decided the two cases in different directions. First, in a per curiam decision in the OSHA case, the court held that the Secretary of Labor had exceeded uh, his statutory authority by imposing such a broad requirement. The court held that it was it was an, sort of an awkward posture. It was the pre- preliminary injunction stage, but the court said that the government was likely to lose on its argument that it had statutory authorization here. They said the OSHA Act's provisions were focused on occupational hazards, hazards peculiar to the workplace. And what HHS was trying to regulate, or sorry, uh, what OSHA was trying to regulate here was the nationwide uh, health risks uh, related to the COVID-19 pandemic. The court said that for that kind of an of a broad, open-ended regulatory power, the courts demand a much clearer and specific statutory authorization. Justice Gorsuch wrote a concurrence where he said what the court had just done was apply the major questions doctrine, even though the court itself and it's in the majority opinion didn't use that phrase. Justice Gorsuch looked at the core of the court's opinion and said, this is just the latest application of that require of that canon of construction that's come up time again uh, recently that the court um, would not lightly defer to an agency's assertion of new or unprecedented sweeping powers in an old familiar statute. There was a dissent from Justice Breyer joined by Justices Sotomayor and Kagan. They said that the court was being far too limited in its construction of the OSHA Act, that the OSHA Act uh, empowers the Secretary of Labor very broadly for risks uh, to health in the workplace, and that COVID is such a risk or could reasonably be construed to be such a risk, particularly as the dissenters saw it in workplaces where there's an increased risk of transmission due to people's proximity to one another. In the HHS case, by contrast, the court decided in favor of the agency. Looking at that more specific context of hospitals and looking at the HHS uh, statute, the court concluded that this actually was the kind of mandate that, if not to- not 
directly precedented by previous HHS uh, requirements was close enough to the sort of thing that HHS had imposed under the statute in uh, previous uh, previous cases to come within the statute's reasonable meaning. That occasioned then a dissent by Justice Thomas, joined by Alito, Gorsuch, and Barrett, uh, saying that actually the court was being far too deferential to the agency, that the agency had not been able to root its authorization of power in a specific statute, and rather uh, the agency and the court looked to what Justice Thomas called a constellation of scattered statutes to cobble together authority. Uh, Justice Alito also dissented, uh, joined once again by the other dissenters, criticizing the agency for not going through uh, a full notice and comment process and responding uh, to the sorts of criticisms that would have been raised in that process. So by and large, the cases stand so far for uh, application of the major questions doctrine. I think Justice Gorsuch is right in that respect. It seems an interesting follow-up to cases like the Utility Air Regulatory uh, Group case, another clean uh, climate regulation case from a few years ago, and other prior major questions doctrines cases. And we'll see what happens next to the doctrine, perhaps in uh, one or both of the cases that Deepak alluded to a moment ago. Uh, let me just spend a moment then on the other case, a case that hasn't been decided yet. This is American Hospital Associations versus Becerra. Uh, it is a case about statutory interpretation and Chevron deference. It arises from a very, very specific and complicated statutory structure uh, from the Medicare Prescription Drug Improvement and Modernization Act of 2003. Frankly, reading uh, the briefs in the case brought me back flashbacks to my days as an energy lawyer trying to read FERC decisions. So I won't get too far into the details of the case except to say in very, very broad terms that according to the petitioners in this case, and they're represented by the former solicitor Don Borelli, uh, HHS in its uh, reimbursement of um, of outpatient uh, drug uh, prescriptions, uh, there's a statutory structure for how they should reimburse those things. Uh, primarily, the agency is supposed to go through a a, a survey process to try to ascertain what specifically the hospitals are actually paying to acquire uh, these drugs. And in the absence of such a, uh, a survey process, the agency is, is instructed by Congress to just base uh, reimbursement on the average cost for these drugs across all hospitals. The agency didn't go through the survey process here. They said that actually the framework for this, this process is, is ambiguous enough that they weren't required specifically to go through the, the, the survey process. Uh, and instead, they could adjust drugs uh, reimbursement prices a little bit more leniently. Obviously, the petitioners disagreed, but the D.C. Circuit deferred to the agency and concluded that the statute was ambiguous enough to support HHS's interpretation. So the main question before the court, there is a procedural question over whether judicial review is precluded. I, I won't delve into that. The main question before the court is just a statutory interpretation question. Does the statute support what the agency's done here? Is the agency's interpretation at least reasonable? This case might be decided under Chevron step one, either for or more likely against the agency, judging from the tenor of oral argument. There are some amici in the case who are arguing that this is a good case to get rid of Chevron deference altogether. Uh, and Donald Verrilli said when directly asked that, well, as a fallback, if, if the court has to undo Chevron deference altogether to rule in favor of his clients, he won't object to that. Uh, but it seems most likely this case will be decided within the parameters of the Chevron framework, notwithstanding amicus briefs from the NCLA and, and Pacific Legal Foundation and others who are urging the court to use this as an opportunity uh, to undo Chevron deference altogether. Maybe I'll leave it at that. Thanks, Jen. Great. Thanks, Adam. And surely we will explore uh, that more um, in the discussion to come. The court's tendency to take on any big issues or ad law doctrines this year. But before that, Hosh, would you tell us about a couple um, additional significant ad law cases before the court this term? Thanks. And I'll just discuss today uh, two cases that focus on procedural issues concerning challenges to agency action. So the first case I'll talk about is uh, Axon versus FTC. That's a case that was recently granted and will likely be decided next term. The question presented in the case concerns uh, when you have an agency, ongoing agency adjudication, and a party has a structural constitutional challenge to the adjudication, can the party bring an immediate suit in district court, 
the collaterally attack the adjudication, or does the party have to go through the agency adjudication process and at the end of the process take an appeal? Uh, the case arises in the specific context of the FTC and a challenge to the FTC's ALJs and the double level of, or arguably triple level, of removal restrictions that are imposed uh, at the uh, FTC and ALJ under uh, cases like Free Enterprise Fund and Lucia. Uh, so the question presented basically arises at the intersection of two lines of precedent at the court. So in general, the court has recognized in cases like Thunder Basin and Elgin that when Congress authorizes a remedial scheme, an administrative review scheme for agency adjudication, parties have to go through that scheme and then seek an appeal from it rather than collaterally attacking it. So if you have just a, a just straightforward, normal agency adjudication where you think that the agency's substantive theory is wrong, you have to go through the adjudication. You can't just sort of get a district court to join it on the front end. But the court has recognized that while that's generally the true and generally the implication from the creation of the congressional scheme, there are some claims that might be sufficiently collateral to the scheme that maybe you shouldn't have to go through that. And the leading case for that, especially in this context, is the court's decision in Free Enterprise Fund, where the court held that when challengers were bringing a facial constitutional challenge to the entire ability of the PCAOB to do anything, uh, you didn't have to sort of pick an agency action at random go through the review process for that, and then challenge it. You could just bring a facial challenge up front. And so this case sort of is right at the intersection of those two lines of cases, because on the one hand, you have a structural constitutional challenge, the ability of the adjudicators to adjudicate anything. But on the other hand, it's in the context of a concrete agency adjudication. And so the question is, which one of those sort of lines is going to have more force in, in the court? So the government basically pitches the case as one about administrability and judicial restraint. You've got an ongoing adjudication. It makes sense to let the adjudication play out and then have one review of all the issues that arise in it, particularly because you might avoid having to decide constitutional questions unnecessarily if the challenger wins on the antecedent statutory grounds. The challenger, you know, conversely emphasizes points about efficiency and injury. You know, why have slog through years of an adjudication if it turns out that the adjudicatory scheme is facially defective and you're going to have to redo everything all over again afterwards, especially because they assert that if there's a unique constitutional injury from even being subjected to the process of an adjudication by a government official who is impermissibly insulated from presidential supervision. So, you know, how the court's going to address that, it's, it's a little unclear. This isn't one of these cases where the court seemed raring to decide it and you have a pretty good sense that they're going to reverse. You know, the court relisted it multiple times and they've previously denied cert several times. And I think what prompted the court to take it is the Fifth Circuit on just on bonk recently and late, late in December of last year in an SEC case said that there was no uh, channeling requirement. So I think that creation of a circuit split is largely what impelled the court to act. You know, that said, if I had to guess, I think that the uh, the challengers are likely going to win this case. And I think for potentially an ironic reason, which is the government last term in a case called Collins versus FHFA won. And they won on a remedial argument that the government actually hadn't pressed, but the court sort of adopted on its behalf, which was that in removal challenges, if you're challenging a past agency action, there has to be at least some sort of proof that the removal restriction had an effect on the action, that the agency official would have done something differently or that the president actually wanted to do something different, because otherwise the court suggested it was basically harmless. And why that's ironic for its implications here is that I think one of the stronger arguments the challengers are going to have for them is because of that ruling, it's not clear that they can actually challenge this on the back. It's not at all clear they're going to be able to make the showing that Collins requires. And if you can't challenge it on the back end and you can't challenge it on the front end, then it really is insulated from judicial review. So I think that dynamic is going to cut pretty strongly in the challenger's favor. Uh, so if I had to guess, I think that's what's going to drive the analysis on that one. Uh, the second case I'll uh, talk about briefly is Arizona versus San Francisco. Uh, this is a case that will be argued in the upcoming February sitting. Uh, the question presented concerns the standards for intervening in a case 
after the government ceases to defend a rule that's been challenged under the APA. It arises in the context of the DHS public charge rule that was promulgated during the last administration. DHS promulgated a rule that governed the standards for admissibility of aliens. It was promptly challenged by a variety of left-leaning jurisdictions and organizations, a lot of whom won either preliminary injunctions or even in one case, a final judgment. The government appealed all of those cases, sought stays, and eventually the government actually received two stays from the Supreme Court, uh, and then the court actually granted cert. But then when there was the uh, the new administration came in, uh, sort of summarily, the, court, the new administration just dropped all their appeals. They dropped the cert petitions, they dropped the appeals in the other pending cases, and the effect of that was to leave all the district court judgments in, in force including the final judgment that vacated the rule permanently. And so at that point, a bunch of right-leaning jurisdictions all tried to intervene in these cases to resume the defense of the rule. Uh, and, the, and so far, uh, the, court, the lower courts have refused to let them in. And so the question before the court is whether they should have been allowed to intervene in these circumstances. So there are a bunch of case-specific issues uh, that I won't uh, bore you all with right now. But I do think that there are two general legal issues that are of some importance to parties who engage in litigation concerning agency action. One, there'll be, uh, there's potentially going to be a pretty important decision about what types of interests support intervention as of right in the context of an APA challenge. And that could be a pretty significant ruling if the court ends up reaching that issue. Uh, and then the other, and this is the ones uh, I find particularly interesting, is how the court is going to deal with the competing considerations about whether DOJ can just drop litigation this way and whether par- private parties should be able to come in to sort of take up the defense. Because the government, on the one hand, is going to emphasize that by statute and constitutional prerogative, you know, DOJ ha- has exclusive authority to litigate on behalf of the United States in defending agency action. And the challengers, on the other hand, have emphasized that, look, if, they, if DOJ can do this, you're essentially allowing agencies to end run the APA notice and common rulemaking process. Because in general, even if an agency doesn't like its old rules, and especially the rules from a prior administration, what you have to do is go through notice and comment to repeal them if they were adopted pursuant to notice and comment. And what essentially happens in a case like this where the government just abandons its appeals is the final judgment vacating the rule goes into effect And you don't have to uh, rescind it through notice and comment, even if it turns out that that district judge was potentially wrong, as well may have been the case here where the Supreme Court had granted stays and was going to reach the merits. So it'll be interesting to see how the court addresses that dynamic, and in particular what it thinks of the government's litigating decisions in the case. Excellent. So thank you very much, Hosh, and everybody who came before. can definitely see folks' expertise and litigation background shining through. I am going to first give you all a chance. I mean, does anybody have an addition uh, that they would like to make to someone else's description of a case or clarification? I I have a few questions that I'd like to pose to everybody, but I wanted to give you all a chance to respond to each other first. I was curious, um, you know, Adam, you said you thought that the um, Becerra case would be decided under the Chevron framework. Um, I wonder if you think if what you're envisioning um, is that the the court will actually say that it is, um, you know, using Chevron as a tool to decide the case. I sort of got from the oral argument that, and I think this is true of many cases that have implicated Chevron over the past however many terms, that the court might write an opinion that's just agnostic. And so it will just kind of leave the issue, uh, kick the can down the road, so to speak. Well, I basically agree with that. We might be saying the same thing slightly different ways. I, well, what I what I mean is, I think the court. I think it's unlikely the court's going to get rid of Chevron here. I think that the most likely outcome, based on my reading of the briefs, but also from oral argument, is that the court's going to rule against the agency at Chevron step one and say that the that the the statute just precludes what you've tried, what you the agency have tried to do here. So it won't fall back to Chevron step two and questions about reasonableness. Uh, as the DC Circuit did, uh, there won't be any there won't be any move by the court to get rid of Chevron altogether. 
Um, as it happens, I was going to offer a, just a thought on, on Deepak's opening remarks. Um, I liked the way that he, he, he phrased, and I think it was in your, your, your reference to the wetlands case um, or the alleged wetlands case, um, where you said the court would finally settle the issue. It's really remarkable to, to look at that case, both the, the, the Sackett case, the latest Sackett case, and the, the, the Clean Power Plan uh, case, and, and see that those cases were all really also teed up or coming through the pipeline towards the end of the Obama administration. You had the, the, the challenge to the Waters of the United States rule coming up through the courts. I think that might even have been the Obama administration's rule had been stayed maybe by a district court. Uh, as you mentioned, the, the the Clean Power Plan case had gotten to the Supreme Court and they'd stayed it there. Um, it, if if the 2016 election had gone in the other direction, these issues about the, the breadth of the EPA and Army Corps' authority over waters uh, and, the, and the EPA's authority with respect to climate would have been the blockbuster cases of the first year of the Clinton administration, which would have just surely continued the Obama administration's policies. And so these things have been lingering for so long. It will be interesting to see how the court grapples with these cases at this posture. As you said, there's some sort of complexities about the, the posture of, of where both these rules stand. Um, but it does feel like the court is just trying to to settle a lot of, of, of family business, so to speak, now, um, so that there's some more clarity uh, for better and for worse, depending on how you look at it. Maybe for better for me, for worse for you, um, and what the what lies ahead for the agencies and what Congress might need to do to double back and and amend the statutes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, both. It's interesting. Both cases are they're, they're very long running disputes. These questions, you know, require an answer. And they also both present these threshold questions of, you know, can the court really reach the issue? And as I mentioned in the in the Sackett case, like I think, I think the court is likely to say that they can because the you know the agency just without really much explanation withdrew um, its order. I think that in the um, in the uh, clean power case, um, the jurisdictional issue is a more serious issue. Um, the, I think the solicitor general makes a compelling case that. Um, the challengers lack um, standing to invoke the court's appellate jurisdiction because what they're really asking for um, is essentially kind of an advisory opinion about the scope of EPA's authority. And there isn't actually any rule that's in effect right now that's affecting anyone. Um, And so the court may be quite sympathetic to the challengers. You know, everyone wants an answer to this question and it affects so many people. And yet the procedural posture of the case may make it difficult for the court to reach the question. So if that's the case, why would the court, in your view, have continued to take the case here? Right. I mean, that's that's probably the best counter argument to what I just said, which is that, you know, if the court really thought that was a problem, um, you know, they they either they would have maybe wouldn't have granted cert or they would have added uh, an explicit jurisdictional question and they didn't do that. And so perhaps I'm wrong. So I think this discussion actually, um, and particularly what Adam was saying before about uh, American Hospital Association, gets us to larger questions about how much we think that justices have an appetite for revisiting larger doctrines. I would like to, if possible, um, place put pause on that for just a second and switch over to Hosh um, just to follow up on a couple of the more discrete questions with his cases and then come back to a larger discussion about whether we feel like we've had enough rulings or ad law cases with Justice Barrett on the bench to have a sense of where she might be in some of these cases. Justice Kavanaugh, of course, had 15 years in the D.C. Circuit, so we have a little bit more sense where he is. He's been around a couple more years. And then also with Chevron and then in the EPA case, um, some folks want the court to revisit delegation like is the court going to do that when it's got all of these other blockbuster things on the social side? So I think that's worthy of a lot of time. But first, Hosh, on, on your cases, in particular with Axon, the one that you said is was just granted, actually, and it's litigated by Kirkland, Kirkland right? Paul Clement brought the uh, petition, if I recall correctly. Um, you think it'll be argued next term? 
does that case, I mean, you've done a, you did a great job lying, laying out how it might intersect with the court's recent decision in Collins and where the court's been heading with remedies. Is there any intersection too with the court's decision last term in the Davis and Carr versus Saul matter with Social Security Administration that also involved an issue of waiver and a party that was trying to challenge the constitutionality to the structure of the Social Security Administration? Are there any themes or aspects of the court's decision there that you think will impact its thinking in Axon? Or are the two cases sufficiently distinct because they're dealing with different agencies? So there's a little bit. There's not a lot, but there's a little bit. And the different agencies isn't too much of uh, too salient. So Carr was a case about failure to exhaust. So it, it was a case where the party had gone through the agency process, and it was whether you fail to raise an argument within the agency. And what did most of the work in Carr wasn't really that it was constitutional or non-constitutional or anything like that. It was unique to the fact that the SEC, sorry, the uh, Social Security Administration is non-adversarial. And so because of that, they didn't think that it made sense to impose an exhaustion requirement. Now, it's true that the court did add as like an additional factor that the claim there was of constitutional magnitude and structural constitutional error. But it's not clear that that was actually necessary to the decision. Several of the justices expressly declined to join that portion of the opinion, including justices who actually probably think more about the constitu- structural constitutional stuff. It was the conservative justices like Thomas Gorsuch and Barrett, I believe, who didn't join that subsection. So I, I'm not sure I would draw too much of an inference from it, uh, because I, th- I think the procedural question of whether you can sort of end run the process entirely is sufficiently different from the question of what you have to raise once you're in the process. Well, I get that. But do you think there's a sense in which the court's motivated generally in these cases by just an overall sort of sense or instinct of fairness that if these agencies are unconsciously structured, why are we making the party raise that claim before the agency, which it almost certainly will lose? on the argument, right? Because what agency is going to say, oh, or ALJ, oh, we're unconstitutionally appointed. I mean, so maybe that instinct will motivate the court. Yeah, in both uh, cases, look, I, I think to some extent, right? It, it, it's sort of what I was saying in, in my opening is I think that's definitely Paul's pitch is, you know, why are you making us drag through this process in front of someone who's unaccountable, then we're going to win eventually. And then we're going to have to go back and redo it all again. Like, what's the point of any of that? And I think the government's pitch on the other side is going to say, look, there are, real, there are good reasons to not have a bunch of collateral challenges to an adjudication, foremost among them, that you might not need to decide this constitutional question, right? Like Axon could win on the merits of the antitrust claim, and then you've unnecessarily decided a, you know, a difficult constitutional question. Mm-hmm. And so it's just going to be a question of how the court balances those, those factors. Yeah, and I suppose that'll be related to my follow-up question, which is, I mean, interestingly in the petition, right, uh, Paul raised the question that we're talking about now, but he also raised the constitutional merits question. Are the adjudicators actually unconstitutionally structured because there's this double or, as you say, possible triple uh, four-calls removal protection, which basically just means we've got the agency adjudicator who has tenure protection, the FTC commissioners have tenure protection. In the free enterprise fund decision, the court suggested that there would at least be some instances where you have two layers of officials with tenure protection, and that's a problem. Here, as you alluded to, there might be a third layer, which is that to even be able to get the agency adjudicator out, you also need the approval ultimately of the Merit System Protection Board, which itself is. So, I mean, it seems like litigants want this question to be considered. Um, Litigants have been doing this in a number of petitions before the court, whether it's ad law or other instances, like the Bivens case that's coming up at the very beginning of March, right, where it's the merits of that case, narrow question, but then also the petitioner wanted the court to re-examine the constitutionality of Bivens. And in many of these cases, the court's taking them, but it's peeling off and saying, we're not going to actually get to what those of us on the outside might think is the real interesting question. Here, do you think the court declined to look at the constitutionality of the removal protections themselves just because it feels like there's so many other questions it has to analyze first? Or is this the court, again, just being incrementalist and maybe not actually wanting to do too much in the ad law structure space this year when it's being asked to reconsider things like Roe versus Wade and the extent of Second Amendment rights, and it just doesn't want to issue splashy opinions in too many areas all at once? Uh, as I think it just it's a more simple explanation than that. You know, the underlying constitutional question wasn't decided below. There's no split on it. And probably most importantly, 
when the court decided Lucia, the case about whether the ALJs are officers in the first place, the uh, SG's office actually tried to get the court to decide this question then. Because the, the SG's office argued like, look, if you say these people are officers and don't decide the issue about the removal restriction, it's going to cast a cloud over all of this. Uh, and the court declined to grant then. And then, you know, the SG's office actually put in their marriage brief anyway, hoping uh, that the court would pass on it. Court declined to do so. And so at this point, it would just be very strange if the court sort of injected itself into that issue before courts below had decided it and even potentially a split has developed. So it would have been it would have been pretty surprising, I think, given the history of this particular issue. Yeah, I, I agree with Hash. I think it's in the, in this case, in the Axon case, I think it's a pedestrian reason, which is just and, and that's, you know, the SG's brief in opposition said very little about the constitutional issue. And all it said really is, um, you know, this wasn't decided below and there are, and there are vehicles uh, percolating through the courts, um, you know, that present the constitutional question um, and don't have the impediment of a, of a channeling problem. So um, the, the court will have an opportunity to reach the question if it needs to. Yeah. And Paul, such a, Paul Clements, obviously such a savvy, experienced litigator, Looking at the, the the petition, one has to wonder. I mean, he knows what a long shot it would be to get the merits question before the court, and one wonders if maybe he put that in there just to lend ballast and weight to the to the question he really thought that the court would grant and and would rule in his favor on, or perhaps just to keep it on folks' minds for down the line, bringing the challenge. But no, so we we've explained away that one. Now, I mean, we have other cases, as you all mentioned, the American Hospital Association case, where some folks are hoping the court will re-examine Chevron. And I took Adam to essentially be saying in Deepak that really what the you all well Adam thinks the court might likely do is just say the agency went beyond the scope of what the statutory text says. Therefore, one doesn't need to reach Chevron step two. But it, but I think what Deepak was saying is maybe they won't even mention Chevron at all, right? Like you could see an opinion, which has happened before in these cases, claiming Chevron deference, where the court just says you violated the statute and then they don't have to comment one way or the other. Um, the court, however, could make the choice in issuing such an opinion to say, and this is an illustration of how we're going to apply the statutory scheme and we don't really need to have a difference framework at all. In West Virginia versus EPA, it could talk about delegation. I mean, are the reasons, I mean, do we think the court's going to avoid those doctrines in those cases again, because they can just be most honestly simply resolved without reaching the big constitutional or doctrinal questions? Or um, like when are the ad law justices who sometimes seem to think the system's all out of whack going to get a chance to really um, re-examine the structural scheme for agencies? I have a slightly different reaction, maybe, than Adam Deepak, but I'm not sure. Which is, you know, I'd be surprised if the, uh, that ACA case, AHA case doesn't say anything about Chevron. Like, there are cases where they uphold regulations and just like say, oh, the government's right and don't bother to say anything. But if, you're gonna, if the government's going to lose, and it seems like the government's likely going to lose this one, it'd be pretty remarkable to just say that without saying anything about Chevron. But more than that, I think the court's going to want to take the case as an opportunity to do something that I think they've been doing in a lot of cases, which is trying to put teeth into step one of Chevron, trying to emphasize that you don't just like look at a statute, say it's complicated and say, oh, it's ambiguous. You have to sort of do the traditional tools of statutory interpretation. You know, this is footnote nine of Chevron. The court in Kaiser made a big deal of emphasizing that principle in the context of our deference. And analogizing to Chevron, I think the court's going to want to sort of emphasize that ambiguity to get you into the Chevron bucket. is It's a significant undertaking. And I don't, I, I'm not familiar enough with this case to know sort of which canons and which statutory interpretation tools the court's going to want to emphasize. But I'm, I think there's a pretty good chance that they're going to want to say something about how you shouldn't just leap to deference in a case like this. I actually don't disagree with Hashem. And I think that um, you know, at oral argument, um, it was Justice Kavanaugh who asked Don Verrilli directly about footnote nine. And he um, he said, you know, isn't your argument basically that we should take footnote nine of Chevron seriously? Um, and, you know, as, as, as you said, that footnote just says you should employ, you know, traditional tools of statutory construction. Um, and so I, I anticipate there will at least be something like that in the opinion. But, um, you know, Justice Alito 
um, and maybe one other justice, I can't remember, pressed um, Don Verrilli, you know, like, I think at one point he was asked, you know, the only way you can win this case <laughs> is if we overrule uh, Chevron. Um, you know, he, he said, yes, we want to win the case. But um, the the challengers are not pushing Chevron very much. The government is not pushing Chevron very much. And, you know, that's a feature of litigating before the court now is that um, is that the, the government and, and people on the government side don't really push um, Chevron in the in the in the vaccine mandate cases, I think that the Solicitor General did not even invoke Chevron, um, which is pretty remarkable and, and was not mentioned at all in any of the opinions. My guess is that a number of justices will write separately on these Chevron issues. And you'll see some I, I do expect you'll see a, a reference to Chevron in the majority. It just seems to me, though, that almost ironically, because the justices at oral argument seemed generally to agree that the agency was on very thin ice. Well, ironically, I think they'll actually, the justices will say less about it in the majority opinion, about, about Chevron and even about putting more teeth into Chevron step one. I would love for them to put more teeth in Chevron step one, and I think that's in fact what they're doing. But I think that the more that the majority opinion actually tries to write about it in those terms, the more risk there is that subtle disagreements or subtle choices of tone among various justices would complicate things. This feels almost like one of those Thanksgiving dinners where everybody will be happier the less that everybody says. Um, and the justices can can save their own sort of particular contributions to the Chevron debate, which is an, obviously an important debate um, for primarily for separate opinions. Well, I guess and that leads to my question, which is then if you're somebody who thinks Chevron needs to be reined in, maybe a justice writing, like the, then does it take the any power away from the opinion? So, I mean, it's one thing, for example, in Kaiser or this opinion or whatever to sort of say you have to give more teeth to step one or you have to look more at threshold questions or what the statutory scheme says. But when the lower courts are always going to be getting cases that are maybe framed slightly differently, I mean, what does that mean? Just that they're going to feel more like they have to go through the motions of mentioning statutory interpretation tools? Or is there a particular way that the court can concretely signal what it expects lower courts to do? At least that's a question I have sort of as a professor trying to teach these things or even, you know, studies have been done about what happens with these doctrines in the lower courts. And they tend to rely, I think, more on Chevron and these tools. And if, if it's going to be a tool that's taken out of the toolkit, how does the court do that without just clearly saying you don't have Chevron deference available to you anymore? How does the lower court know how far to go before they can claim ambiguity? Well, if I may, in some ways, this, this part of the case actually reminds me a lot of what I mentioned about the OSHA vaccine mandate case, where the majority basically applies a major questions doctrine analysis. Anybody reading it can look at it and say, oh, that's what they're doing here. But it isn't until Justice Gorsuch's concurrence where you actually see the words major question. He says, look, that's what the court is doing here. Um, you might see something similar with the with the Becerra case. Now, of course, if it turns out that two or three of the justices uh, would actually rule outright for the agency at, at, at conference, well, then maybe the smaller majority would free up the justices to speak a little bit more explicitly and a little bit more directly about what exactly they're doing with, say, step one of Chevron. But if they get to conference and uh, eight or nine of the justices are all on the same page with the basic tenor of the case and, and the outcome, then I, I think the majority opinion would say less and it'll be left to maybe Gorsuch again with a concurrence or other justices with concurrences to say, well, here's what's happening in Chevron step one. And maybe other justices will write their own concurrences disputing that characterization. And it'll make and it make look, interesting. I think, and I think to answer your question, Jen, in terms of both signaling and how you ever sort of tee up the broader question, right? The way you signal the lower courts is it's got to be in terms of how the opinions write, right? So you have an opinion where you look at the statutory language and like maybe you could go either way if you just look at the language, right? But then if the court then goes and parses through a bunch of, you know, semantic canons and substantive canons and all the rest of it and gets to the end of it and say like now that we've done all of that, like there's no longer a reasonable argument here. There's only one answer. If they do that a couple of times in a couple of different contexts and the lower courts take them seriously, like it'll give litigants different arguments about, no, you can't just like point to some general phrase and say that's enough to create ambiguity. Now, are you potentially going to have lower courts that push the boundaries on that? Of course you are, right? Because when you're dealing with something like ambiguity or vagueness, 
those aren't self-defining concepts. But I think the tricky thing for the court is going to be there. The only case you can you really should be overruling Chevron is in the case where the government would win under Chevron. And so then you have the situation that, you know, people often remarked about Justice Scalia, right? He was perfectly happy with Chevron deference, but that's also because he was perfectly happy to say that most statutes were clear, right? The the very same justices who are inclined to be uh, hostile to Chevron are also the ones who are likely to say that statutes are often clearer than the government might suggest it is. So getting a good vehicle for those justices to overturn Chevron is actually a little tricky. You have to get one where they actually think that there are two reasonable interpretations and the government has picked a reasonable but second best one. Well, I agree with that. And that's why I, I'm not super optimistic. And I think the court would just have to decide that it's important enough for lower courts that we're going to say once and for all, Chevron is no longer a tool and almost reach out and do that. Because I mean, to your point, Hosh, that they just have to be clear a couple of times and model this for us. I mean, I would argue that that actually happened in a couple of cases written by Justice Gorsuch and others in the final term that Justice Kennedy was on the court. I'm forgetting the name of the case, but he separately once actually wrote, I think we should maybe revisit Chevron for X, Y, and Z reasons. And there was a series of a couple of careful statutory interpretation rulings that had been written by the court that term. And still here we are sort of not sure whether Chevron deference applies. But so more broadly, you know, this seminar or this webinar is hosted by the Center for the Study of the Administrative State. So of course, we're trying to um, take a look at all of the ad law threads in the court's term. Are there an unusually high number of ad law cases this term? Are we likely to see any significant changes? Or, I mean, are Adam and I over eager? And this is just sort of a run of the mill set of cases here. I do not think it is a run of the, the, the mill set of cases. I think you now have a majority of a super majority of the court that is skeptical of. Uh, you know, broad assertions of federal um, executive authority, federal regulatory authority. Um, You have, um, you know, at least three justices that are staking out um, a willingness to to revisit um, uh, the relationship between non-delegation and the major questions doctrine and, and three justices who we don't know the extent to which they are. And I think that seems like the big question that emerges to me from the vaccine mandate cases um, is, you know, to what extent is, um, is anyone else on board besides the, the three justices and the, in, in the Gorsuch concurrence um, with this, um, with this project. And, um, you know, we said earlier that that, it's hard to read the the, the per curiam um, without coming away with the conclusion that they have applied the major questions doctrine. They just haven't said so. And same thing with the eviction um, moratorium decision. So you already have a majority that's on board for deploying that tool. If you think that that's a major question, are you going to say that um, clean power <laughs> is not a major question? <laughs> I, you know, I wouldn't want to put a lot of money on that prediction. Um and so it it could be that the um, the major questions doctrine now is a kind of quasi constitutional um, doctrine. I think um, you know it's it's not clear whether it's just a rule of statutory construction. It seems like it's something more than that. Um, at least that's the position that that Justice Gorsuch has I think is staking out. Um, and so the big question for me is you know whether whether that reappears in a in a majority opinion of the Supreme Court. Yeah, anything else? Yeah, no, look, I have a similar reaction, which is uh, uh, what they want to do about non-delegation is both largely the ballgame for all three of these things, major questions, Chevron and non-delegation. It really all does come down to non-delegation because, you know, major questions, they can't just keep saying everything's a major question. Like, first of all, if you say that every time you have a case, it's going to sort of water down the concept. And especially at lower courts, it's just sort of silly, right? Like, yeah, when the Supreme Court takes like the three biggest rules a year, they can say everything's a major question. But like going forward, there's going to be a lot of delegation questions that you can't sort of with a straight face say is a major question. And it's not at all clear to me where the court overall is on non-delegation. So we know that, you know, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas and Justice Alito, both between Gundy and uh, the OSHA case have signaled a pretty clear interest 
in rebuilding non-delegation. But, you know, on the other hand, uh, both Kavanaugh and Barrett didn't join that at the Gundy concurrence. And, you know, the key move that Justice Gorsuch makes in his Gundy opinion is this line between the Congress setting the policy and agency setting the details. And that's a fairly vague and it's not clear that that is a workable line. And I think both, and, you know, one way of thinking about it, you know, Justice Scalia, in his Whitman opinion, sort of made that point that like those sort of lines don't really hold up. And I think both Kavanaugh and Barrett are going to be attuned to not just do we think that there's a problem with existing doctrine, but do we have a workable replacement? It's actually the same exact dynamic that happened in the Fulton case about overruling Smith, where, you know, Alito wrote an opinion saying there's all these problems with Smith. They said, yeah, that might be right, but they're also, it's not all clear what comes, what replaces it until we know we're just going to leave things as is. I think especially on the non-delegation doctrine, even more than Smith, like, I think they're going to feel the need to know exactly what they're going to replace it with. And I'm not so sure policy versus details is going to get the job done. So I agree that I think that members of the court will have nervousness about replacing intelligible principle like with Fulton until there's a good alternative given. Now, Adam, you can maybe go and maybe you know this in more detail because you're an AEI person as well. I think AEI is about to publish or has published or is actually having a conference this week on this very topic about a bunch of smart people getting into a room trying to tell the court what the replacement could be. But even if they don't do that to the satisfaction of the court, I think I wonder if one distinction here, though, is. The court's going to obviously, I would think a majority of the justices want to get a question right. So even if, in like they did with Fulton, even if they don't say we're getting rid of intelligible principle, but we're just applying current doctrine here, and they were to apply it to find a statute to be unconstitutionally broad, that would still be somewhat significant, right? Since the court hasn't applied the doctrine to find a statute unconstitutional in many years. So there could still be shockwaves, even if the court doesn't replace intelligible principle just by finding the standard not met. It seems like maybe. I mean, I'd be curious if you guys want to fight me on that. The second thing is, it is true, you know, we don't know Kavanaugh and Barrett's views entirely because of Gundy. But just to point out for folks looking back, Gundy, I think the issue was it was argued right before Kavanaugh joined the court, right? So yeah, actually, it, was, it was a 4-4 court with Kavanaugh not yeah. Right, and he has in this I think since then, written a dissent from denial or a separate writing acknowledging that he might be willing to revisit the question. Justice Barrett, of course, we don't know, and she is a former Scalia clerk, so perhaps she is more sympathetic to his general approach there as well. Um, so I don't know if folks have if folks have thoughts um, on that. Are we just stuck with intelligible principle for all indefinite future until scholars and litigants come up with the silver bullet alternative test? Maybe I'll just say briefly and fly my AEI flag for a moment that, yes, uh, John Yu and Peter Wallison edited a book that's coming out soon. There's, there's going to be an online event on Friday uh, at AEI on, uh, on the non-delegation doctrine. As it happens, uh, Jen, your old boss, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, when he was still Judge Kavanaugh, he gave the annual Constitutional Day lecture at AEI a couple of years before, or maybe even just a year before he was nominated to the Supreme Court. And he actually focused on Chief Justice Rehnquist and Rehnquist's non-delegation opinion in the benzene case. And so he's been focusing on this for a long time, too. And one last thing about Kavanaugh while I'm at it, uh, Hash, you mentioned the question about too many questions being framed as major questions and this problem of major being in the eye of the beholder. I recall Judge Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit almost 10 years ago in a case involving uh, Treasury's assertion of authority over tax preparers. Uh, Kavanaugh inserted sort of a, a major questions analysis in that opinion where he was construing the statute. I can't remember what it was. The case was called Loving versus IRS. So yeah, major probably does, uh, you know, majors in the eye of the beholder and we'll see how that plays out. But on non-delegation in general, one of the things that for me is so interesting about the non-delegation debates in and around the court is I think one of the reasons why we're not seeing the court come together uh, for just a straightforward non-delegation decision, it's not just that they haven't formulated a new principle as an alternative to intelligible principle, but it's that the justices, a number of the justices are actually focused on slightly different things, or at least there's different 
aspects or threads to the issue that justices are, are introducing now. I, mean, I look at what Chief Justice Roberts is doing in some of his recent cases and the major questions cases too. Um, he's, he seems very, very worried about agency flip-flops from one administration to the next, just the unsteadiness of administration over time. The OSHA case, its major questions analysis actually feels a lot, almost like a, a case of statutory liquidation right? It's the major questions doctrine as almost a, a doctrine of settling a statute's meaning over time and really putting the burden on the agency and Congress to prove that the agency's meaning hasn't been settled over time. There's almost a flavor of reliance interests, which has popped up, obviously, in some administrative law cases in some of these. So I think a number of the justices are just still coming to grips with what exactly they're talking about when we're talking about non-delegation. And so I think we're going to have some interesting years ahead before the court actually settles on something. Look, I think that's all right. I'll throw one other point into the mix about this, about the difficulty of the issue, at least from my perspective, right? Like you think about laws like the antitrust laws, right? Those are pretty vague. And it's hard to understand why if you can't give that to an agency, you can give it to a court. My recollection, actually, is uh, now Judge Oldham might have written a law review article about it right around when we were all in law school together. But I don't think other than a handful of people, most people wouldn't say that the antitrust laws are going to go down as violating the non-delegation doctrine or void for vagueness. And if you don't think that, it, it amplifies the difficulty of what exactly is the problem with the delegation, right? Is your concern really not about Congress not doing things? but who's receiving it. And if your problem is really about the agency, why is it about the substance? Why is it about the structure of the agency? Like the interconnections between these things, I think are pretty complicated. Oldham's article, by the way, I met, we were in law school together when he wrote that and it's called uh, the Sherman Act's March into the Sea or something like that. I remember reading the draft of it when we were in law school and saying, wow, this, this guy is not to be trifled with. He's pretty hardcore. Yes. Uh, yep. Lots of interesting writing. It was foreshadowing. Um, okay, so we are coming up to the end of our time. And so I want to give folks who are with us an opportunity in the chat function, I think, to pose questions while folks consider whether they're going to do that. I have one final question for our panelists, which is to think about, so Justice Breyer's retiring. He is generally seen as an administrative law guru expert. Um does his departure from the bench, do we expect that to have a significant impact? I mean, on the one hand, right, it's a justice who generally, I think, has been seen as a vote with more of the liberal wing of the court. Presumably, President Biden will um, replace him with somebody who's going to vote similarly. So will there be no outcome or will there be a real change because of the specific flavor of ad law expertise he uh, brought to the court um, that depending on who the nominee is, may or may not be also an area of specific specialty for the new uh, justice. It's hard to say without knowing who the the nominee is, of course, but, you know, it does mean that we're down from three administrative law scholars on the court to one. (laughs) Uh, Justice Kagan is the last remaining, you know, admin law professor. And, And I do think that, you know, these issues, these are issues that shaped um, Justice Breyer, and 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 he was quite passionate about. I mean, he, you know, few people are as passionate about the need for delegation to experts <laughs> to solve problems as as Justice Breyer. And you could see that, I thought, in the oral arguments in the OSHA uh, case, that normally you do not see a lot of fire coming from uh, Justice Breyer. He is someone who really values collegiality, and I, I just thought that. His frustration and some of the comments from the bench were, uh, for him, quite remarkable and unusual. And maybe, uh, who knows, maybe he already knew he was leaving and is not very happy with um, the, the way things are going. And so, you know, query whether the new justice is going to be, um, is whether those issues are going to be as central um, to the, the new justice. Um, and so, you know, that's a, a, a loss for the court. And, and you know, Justice, it's the end of an era. Um, he's also, a, a, you know, just by virtue of being a long-serving justice and the relationships he had built, he was able to find common ground um, in ways that a, a new justice may not be able to. Yeah. I have one additional reaction, which is he's obviously quite famous or infamous, depending on your perspective, with respect to multi-factor balancing tests. 
and those sort of approaches. And it seems relevant to the ad law issue. So for example, you know, he's pretty well known on, on Chevron, right? That he has, his version of step zero is a much more amorphous inquiry into, you know, things like the type of the issue, the type of the agency, whether it's interesting, like he's got all these factors he looks at. It's not clear to me that the current court would have much interest in that, even if his replacement has the same approach. But it's also not clear to me that that isn't the best way to try to preserve some amount of Chevron in the current court. If you have a court that's otherwise, if you put them to an all or nothing choice of either we get rid of it or we don't, in a case where it's squarely teed up, I'm not sure I would bet that they keep it. Uh, But if you give them some sort of middle ground, it's not implausible that they would latch onto it, especially when it's starting decisis. So his instinct for that sort of multi-factor approach might actually be a significant loss, especially because I highly doubt whoever replaces him will have that same sort of approach. And given Justice Breyer's first book on the subject, I think was he co-wrote a book on the Federal Power Commission. Um, I don't know who the president's going to pick, but surely uh, her background will be different than Justice Breyer. And one of the one of the things that's been so interesting for debates like this over the last few years is just to see the generational turn around administrative law and administration. Right, Justice Scalia's view of administrative law was very different from the next generation of judges, and surely the same. Is, is true of Breyer. And in part, that's because Scalia's and Breyer's views of administration were shaped by just fundamentally different experiences in a different era. So it'll be very interesting to see what the next generation of judges now being appointed will, will say. But also, I think it'll carry beyond what we think of as administrative law cases specifically, um, and not even just the structural constitutional issues that we're talking about. But just in this term, uh, the New York uh, gun case, the Second Amendment case, it's to, by my eye, the, the justices' questions are really, really colored by their view of how the statute was being administered, right? That was central to the, the dispute over the Texas abortion case. It's going to be central, to, it has been central and will continue to be central to disputes about immigration and not just, you know, the, the procedural, you know, the DACA repeal case, but to the extent that immigration issues continue to return to the court, the justices' opinions are really going to be shaped sometimes subtly, but sometimes explicitly by their understanding of how the laws are being administered and what it, what good administration is, even when the case isn't a quote-unquote administrative law case. And so I'm really, really interested to see actually who the, the president nominates. And, my, and I'm very interested to see if her just both spoken and unspoken sense of administration is the same as Breyer's and what that might mean well beyond administrative law. Excellent. Well, thank you all for bringing your expertise here. This has been a really engaging discussion. I have learned a lot. Hopefully the audience um, has found it helpful as we move forward, because as you all know, none of the cases we talked about today have yet had obviously decisions issued this term. Uh, At least five of the six, it looks like, will be uh, resolved this term. And we are going to have a copy of the or a tape of the uh, webinar available through podcasts sooner rather than later through the Gray Center website or through our podcast services through Ricochet and other services, Apple, I think, iPod as well, right, Adam? And so thanks so much for joining us. Um, We hope to see you all sometime in person again very soon. Thanks to our panelists and everybody have a wonderful day. 